got for you guys today. Um, we're going to start off the sermon by doing something a little bit different because something that I was feeling, and I know that you all are probably feeling as well, as we continue to go deeper into Hebrews, is that Hebrews takes us into a very strange world. It's disorienting. When we think of people being sprinkled with ashes of cows, it's weird. And so I just want to acknowledge that, but also to kind of zoom out and help us gain a little perspective of what the purpose of Hebrews actually is for us today. Why do we go back into that world? And as I was thinking about what I want for myself, what I want for our church as we study Hebrews, it's really simple. It's that our love for Jesus would grow. That simply just we would have a growing love for Jesus. And so we are getting plunged into the depths of who Jesus is and how he is the fulfillment of all of scripture and all these different details. And my hope is that that will help us to love him. And so I want to take us into a psalm that's not at all necessarily part of Hebrews. But I want to take us into Psalm 27 for just a second to kind of set the tone because it's going to show us what Hebrews is trying to explain to us, but with a song in a poetic way that'll engage our hearts. And so this is David, and he's writing a psalm about his greatest love, his greatest hope. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And I think that really encapsulates kind of the feeling of Hebrews. The feeling of Hebrews is it's written to a people who have enemies on all sides, and they're in a world that is broken fundamentally. They're in exile. They're in the wilderness. 
They're unsure of their future. And so the author of Hebrews is writing this book to encourage them, wait for the Lord. He has given you everything that you need. Persevere. And as you do that, he will come near to you. You will know him better. And your only hope will be confirmed in him. And so for us, I know that we are in the same world that they are in. We're in a world that is broken. We have lives that are marred by evil and sin. And so this morning, we're going to read in Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 14, and we're going to be taken into the tabernacle. And it's important for us to understand why the author is referencing the tabernacle and not the temple. So before we read it, let me explain a little bit of why he wants us to focus on the tabernacle, not the temple. The difference, the fundamental difference between the tabernacle and the temple is that the tabernacle is mobile and it is where God dwells with the people before they enter the promised land. The temple is after the same pattern. It's a little bit bigger and more expansive, but it's more permanent. It's in the land. It's in Jerusalem. And so it's interesting that he skips over the temple and takes us back into the tabernacle because it's a way of communicating to his audience, go back into the wilderness because that's where you are. Don't understand yourselves as in the land yet. Go back into the wilderness to understand the importance of Jesus. And so he is going to take us back into the wilderness this morning and show us a few different things. He's going to show us the source of our hope. He's going to show us the obstacle to our hope. And then finally, he's going to show us the fulfillment of our hope. So let's go ahead and read Hebrews 9, 1 through 14, and we'll get into it. Now, even the first co covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place for holiness, for a tent was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second section, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this... The Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered up that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body um, imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, 
not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, these are deep waters. And Lord, we can trust that you this morning have something for every single one of us. And Lord, so I want, I want to ask us to rest in the mystery that we feel. To rest in the strangeness of this world that you take us to. Because we know that you are going to communicate yourself to us, but you do so gradually. You reveal to yourself yourself to us a little at a time. And so, God, we praise you that as we approach you this morning, that you have something for all of us. Whether we're first wrapping our minds around this for the very first time and who you are, if we don't even know that we're doing that yet, or if we've been walking with you for years and years, Lord, we know that your word is living and active. And so, God, I ask that we would allow ourselves to be re-centered on the hope of your son, on his work as our high priest in his place in your holy temple. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be talking about hope today. And we are talking about hope because that's essentially what the tabernacle represented to Israel in the wilderness. It was hope. It was all about a better future. And that's what hope is. Hope is the thing that you think is going to bring a better future. It's holding on to something that will make things better. And for Israel, God wanted them to know that the thing that was going to bring them a better future was rooted in their past because the tabernacle was patterned after the Garden of Eden. And so this is all connected to that same story. We go back into the garden and we see God dwelling with his people without sin, without death. And we see Adam and Eve naked and unashamed, communing with the Lord. And then as sin enters the world, Adam and Eve are exiled out of the garden. And over time, God shows that he is going to send hope with them into their exile, with their descendants, with their people. And so he gives instructions to Moses to make this tabernacle to go with his people, to remind them of the garden, which symbolizes this presence of God, his presence, his provision for them. And so the source of hope is this tabernacle. And you can see it even in how it's designed and the things that go in it. So you have those two sections, right? You have the holy places and the most holy places that the author is describing. And you're reminded of the garden by the lampstand that looks like a tree. You're reminded of the presence and the provision of God by the table of the what? Of the bread of presence. He feeds you even as you're outside of the garden. 
He cares for you. He goes with you, even though it's not in the exact same way. In your own wilderness, God cares for you. And so this is the holy place. This is kind of like the richness of who God is going out, emanating out. But the most holy place is symbolic for the very center. It's like the most intimate dwelling of God. And this was not to be entered except for by the high priest. There's only one person who could taste what was in the most holy place. Now let's look at what's in there. You have an altar of, innocence, of incense. So the altar of incense represents a couple of things. And there's like a great deal of overlap in the two things that it represents. The first is that it represents the Shekinah glory, the glory cloud. As the smoke of the incense rises, it kind of shrouds the presence of God. And it represents the actual dwelling place of God. But it represents something else. Something that will take us back for, if you were here, into Revelation. You see the purified prayers of the people rising to the presence of God. And this is actually figurative for that intimacy, that bond, that communi communing of the people with God. That is contained in the most holy place. You have the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant is essentially patterned after a throne. And so you're seeing the sovereign reign of God you're seeing an image of the heavenly throne room, a representation of the heavenly throne room showing you that what's in heaven will come to earth. The reign of God as king is coming to the earth. The Ark of the Covenant's there. The urn with the manna is there. And so the manna was God's provision for his people in the wilderness. It's how he fed them. He cared for their physical needs. Not only did he save them from slavery in Egypt, but he fed them and he nourished them with heavenly bread. And so his loving provision is contained in the most holy place. You see Aaron's rod, which budded and that's reminiscent of in Numbers when the people rise up and rebel, the Levites, the priests of God, rise up and rebel against Moses and Aaron and against the Lord. The staff of Aaron buds to confirm him as the high priest of the people. And what that does is it's actually grace, gracious and graceful provision for rebellious people, isn't it? Because the high priest is a servant of the people who are rebelling. And so within the most holy places, you see this object of God's incredible mercy. The tablets of the covenant are in there. The most holy place. It's the righteousness of God. It's the law of God. How he has ordered the universe. Provided to his people to keep them in, communi in communion with him to keep that relationship. And then you have the cherubim. God's glory is there. And so all of these things represent different aspects of one thing, and that is God's presence on this earth. God's presence on this earth. And this is something that 
all of us long for. Whether or not you attribute it to God or not, you long for something that is going to make this world better. You long for something that will make this world a better place. And that's what this is representing. That is actually God's presence that does that. And so the source of our hope is God's presence. I just want to push into that a little bit. Because I think that we are really adept, I know I am, at developing other sources of hope. Other ways to think that maybe the future will be better. Whether doing that through a savings account or investments whether I'm doing that through my family, the more that I invest in them, the better my future will be. Maybe I'm doing that through my health. Like, am I actually trying to extend my life through what I do? Am I trying to preserve my life through what I do? I know that one of the ways that our culture really um, does this, and I think we're in deception, is that we ignore the reality of death. And so part of our hope is in this wellness culture of thinking, if I take good enough care of myself, I can avoid or sidestep death. And one of the ways that we do this is trying to hide the fact that we're aging in a lot of different ways. And that might seem kind of shocking. We're a younger church, but I know that this is starting to concern us. I feel older. Gravity is winning. And so there's different things that we'll do to try and escape that reality, to give ourselves the illusion that our future isn't actually death, but we can kind of hit pause on time and just be 23 for the rest of our lives. And so we create other sources of hope, but what that reveals is actually what we're going to talk about next, and that is the barrier to the hope. The barrier to the hope. And this is really kind of depicted in the rites or the rituals that the priests would do. So in verse 6 and um, 6 through 10, we see what the priests would do as they enter into the holy place, into the most holy place. So the tabernacle represents hope. The priests would go into the holy place, and they would perform their ritual duties. So they would kind of go and do what they did in the holy place, still being separated from the most holy place by that, um, by that veil, and then the, the high priest would go that one time a year into the most holy place and he would offer sacrifices for sins through the blood. And so what you see is that the barrier to hope is our sin. The barrier to being in the presence of God is your sin. Another way of thinking about this, or another way that the author described it, is that the people were in need of perfected consciences. You can see in verse 9, he says that the gifts and sacrifices that were offered and arranged in this system couldn't perfect perfect the, the conscience of the people. 
So our need, our barrier to hope is an imperfect conscience. What's, an, what's a conscience? That's something that I think we all, um, it's a word that we use, but you might have trouble defining it because I know I did. And so as I was kind of looking into it, I think it's essentially the heart. The heart and the conscience, biblically speaking, are the same thing. So it's not your feelings, but it's the, the desire center of your life. And one of the ways that the heart functions is to tell you when you've done something that you know is wrong. So that's one of the ways that the heart functions. And so what happens in a sinful world as sinful people is that when we sin, our consciences are afflicted. They accumulate grime. It sticks to them. Our hearts are tainted. We're no longer perfect. And notice that all of these sacrifices, the author says that these are dealing with the body. They're dealing with external. They're dealing with the visible. But they can't deal with the invisible. They can't deal with the internal. And so the barrier remained. The obstacle to hope remained. And again, we, we have various ways of avoiding the obstacle or trying to get around the obstacle. And I want to talk for a second about one that I was reminded of. And maybe you guys will, this will be familiar to you. Maybe not. I'll try and explain it. But I know that a lot of you were at least supposed to read Crime and Punishment at some point when you were in school. You were supposed to read it. If you didn't, well, Judgment Day is here. <laughs> Crime and Punishment is a book about a character Raskolnikov, who tries to imagine himself as exceptional. And so he sees himself as the way around the obstacle to hope. And how he does this is he basically says, yes, there are moral laws that people should follow. Those are for the ordinary people. But I, I'm an exceptional person. Because I know the greater good, and I can actually do things that will bring about the greater good, even if they seem to violate these moral laws that the commoners should follow. And so the thing, the main thing of the book that he does is that he kills this lady who's kind of despicable. Not kind of despicable, she's very despicable. You read the book, and you're like, yeah, I want to kill her too. Like, she is the source of a ton of pain, exploitation, and trauma in a community, and you see that going out. And so you can understand Raskolnikov's desire. He's like, if I kill her, I will be able to take the money that she has, that she's exploited from people. I can go to law school, and I'm going to be a wonderful, righteous lawyer, a righteous judge one day. And I'll be able to free the slave girl that she has working for her. I'll be, be able to do all of these good things after I kill this woman. And so he does it. And now the rest of the book is him trying to hold on to this, this dream that he's exceptional. The problem is, is that he has a conscience. And that conscience starts to eat away at him from the inside out. And progressively, as the story goes, he gets sicker and sicker and sicker. And this is a picture of what we do as people 
as a society. The details might be different, right? We're not living in 19th century Russia. But the human condition is the same. We try and find a way around the barrier to, to hope that we have control over. And for us, I think a lot of us think that, well, guilt, that feeling of the conscience, that bad feeling that I've done something or feeling dirty, feeling polluted, that is the result of past ways of thinking. And so as long as I separate, do a good job of separating myself from the past ways of thinking and just be true to myself, I will be able to throw off the guilt. Why? Because we're exceptional. Because we're each unique. And we just need to give expression to that uniqueness. And that might have been more believable 10 years ago than it is today. But I think we are becoming increasingly disillusioned with that. And we're starting to mourn the death of self-expression as a way of self-fulfillment, as a way of maintaining hope, because our hope is not increasing. We seem to be getting farther away from what we actually want. And we see the fragmentation happening in people's lives, in our own hearts, our own desires. And so we have a huge, increasing desire, I would say, as a culture for something else. The author of Hebrews offers that to us. He offers us the fulfillment of hope. Verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. What's that saying? It's saying that when Jesus ascended as our high priest, he didn't go into the tent. He didn't go into the tabernacle. He went into the reality that the tabernacle pointed to. He didn't go into the thing that gave external expression to the internal reality. He went into the, inter in, in, he went into the internal reality. And that is the heavenly temple. He entered into the fulfillment of what the tabernacle pointed to the very presence of God. How, how did Jesus do that? He did that as a human person. That's our hope, guys. When you are trusting in Christ, when you place your trust in him, you've just attached yourself to him with an unbreakable chain. Where he goes, you will go. He's in the heavenly temple, in the presence of God. That's where you're going. That's your hope. But this isn't just a future hope. It's not just something that we're looking for in the future, but because he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, we have an eternal redemption that sanctifies not only our flesh, but it purifies our conscience from dead works. And that is happening now. 
So if the barrier to our hope, if the barrier to the good life, the barrier to being in the presence of God is a impure conscience, and the blood of Christ, his sacrifice, his death on the cross is what satisfies the payment of that filth that we have all participated in, then we get to enjoy the freedom it gives us now. It's imperfect, but it's progressive, and it's leading us into more and more the fullness of God's presence. So if we think about what happened with the blood of heifers and goats, that the high priest really was able to go into the most holy place, that even goats and cows could allow the high priest to enter that. And just as the Heidelberg Catechism reminded us this morning, it's not as if that blood was purifying sins. But what it was doing, it was pointing to the need for the blood of Christ. And the author says, how much more will his blood allow us to be purified? So you see this contrast between purification of the flesh and purification of the conscience from dead works. What are those dead works? Well, think of it this way. Don't think of it as... um, individual things that you do that bring about death. That is true. But what I think the author is trying to communicate here is things that you do in the realm of death. And the realm of death is everything outside of Eden. Everything that we do is tainted by death. Everything that we suffer is because death has entered into creation through sin. And so the promise that Christ's blood offers us is that we will be made pure from that. We will be made clean from that. We will heal from that. And that's why next week we're going to look at what happens when that happens. We have an eternal inheritance. It's not just for this life, but it's eternal The end of Crime and Punishment is like you go through like 500 pages of darkness and misery, and then there's like three sentences of hope. And Dostoevsky, the author, is like, yeah, and that's a book for another time. (laughs) But here's what happens. At the very end, Raskolnikov recognizes that, and it's through symbolism, but he recognizes that everything that he has done has been in vain. Not only in vain, but it's actually brought about more wickedness than he was trying to prevent in the first place. He sees how his um, impure and tainted conscience wreaked havoc among all of the people that he was trying to help in his life. He realized that he could not earn back the bad thing that he did. If I just do enough good things, it'll make me killing that woman worth it. And he recognizes this through grabbing a copy of the New Testament. And what the New Testament points to 
is this high priest. He recognizes that he is in need of someone else. He is in need of the only true exceptional person, Jesus. Jesus was the only exception to the rule of death, to the rule of sin that plagues our consciences. But instead of Jesus looking at someone, looking at evil and say, oh, I will just kill that person, he took it upon himself and he offered himself up to redeem that person. And so the the next book that Dostoevsky promised to write but never wrote was about that redemption coming to fruition, coming to life in real time in the life of a repentant sinner when they put their faith in Christ. And so we get to see that now through all of the individual stories of this church, through the grand story of this church. We get to actually see what it looks like for the tabernacle to be here with us, to experience the presence of God, to see how that makes all things new. And that that is what we're longing for. So friends, as you are in this land, as you're in the wilderness, don't be surprised when evil lurks. Don't be surprised when things are tainted by sin and death. That's going to happen to us. But also don't lose heart. Because back in Psalm 27, just like David, we are learning to desire one thing. And that is that we would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And we're also realizing and experiencing this promise that Jesus hides us in the shelter of his blood. That he conceals our sin in the cover of his tent. And that he will lift us high upon a rock. And that rock is Christ. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise of your son returning We thank you for the power that you have given faith to unite us to your son. We thank you for your promises that he is in your presence now. And that's where he belongs. And so that's where we will belong. And so, Lord, I ask that we would, again, that we would fall more in love with that, that our love for your son would grow, and that he would be our tabernacle in this wilderness. That as we go through our own sin and suffering, that we not try to work ourselves out of it, but that we would rest in the shelter of his blood and that we would long for your promises to come to fruition. God, we thank you that you give us a taste of this by your spirit We thank you that we get to enjoy this together with your people. And I ask that we would encourage each other along the way to do this more and more. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.